The Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part 1. Of the Produce of Land Which Always Affords Rent. As men, like all other animals, naturally multiply in proportion to the means of their subsistence, food is always more or less in demand. It can always purchase or command a greater or smaller quantity of labor, and somebody can always be found who is willing to do something in order to obtain it. The quantity of labor, indeed, which it can purchase is not always equal to what it could maintain, if managed in the most economical manner, on account of the high wages which are sometimes given to labor. But it can always purchase such a quantity of labor as it can maintain, according to the rate at which that sort of labor is commonly maintained in the neighborhood. But land, in almost any situation, produces a greater quantity of food than what is sufficient to maintain all the labor necessary for bringing it to market, in the most liberal way in which that labor is ever maintained. The surplus, too, is always more than sufficient to replace the stock which employed that labor, together with its profits. Something, therefore, always remains for a rent to the landlord. The most desert moors in Norway and Scotland produce some sort of pasture for cattle, of which the milk and the increase are always more than sufficient, not only to maintain all the labor necessary for tending them, and to pay the ordinary profit to the farmer or the owner of the herd or flock, but to afford some small rent to the landlord. The rent increases in proportion to the goodness of the pasture. The same extent of ground not only maintains a greater number of cattle, but as they are brought within a smaller compass, less labor becomes requisite to tend them and to collect their produce. The landlord gains both ways, by the increase of the produce and by the diminution of the labor which must be maintained out of it. The rent of land not only varies with its fertility, whatever be its produce, but with its situation, whatever be its fertility. Land in the neighborhood of a town gives a greater rent than land equally fertile in a distant part of the country. Though it may cost no more labor to cultivate the one than the other, it must always cost more to bring the produce of the distant land to market. A greater quantity of labor, therefore, must be maintained out of it, and the surplus, from which are drawn both the profit of the farmer and the rent of the landlord, must be diminished. But in remote parts of the country, the rate of profit, as has already been shown, is generally higher than in the neighborhood of a large town. A smaller proportion of this diminished surplus, therefore, must belong to the landlord. Good roads, canals, and navigable rivers, by diminishing the expense of carriage, put the remote parts of the country more nearly upon a level with those in the neighborhood of the town. They are upon that account the greatest of all improvements. They encourage the cultivation of the remote, which must always be the most extensive circle of the country. They are advantageous to the town by breaking down the monopoly of the country in its neighborhood. They are advantageous even to that part of the country. Though they introduce some rival commodities into the old market, they open many new markets to its produce. Monopoly, besides, is a great enemy to good management, which can never be universally established, but in consequence of that free and universal competition which forces everybody to have recourse to it for the sake of self-defense. It is not more than fifty years ago that some of the counties in the neighborhood of London petitioned the Parliament against the extension of the turnpike roads into the remoter counties. Those remoter counties, they pretended, from the cheapness of labor, would be able to sell their grass and corn cheaper in the London market than themselves, and would thereby reduce their rents and ruin their cultivation. Their rents, however, have risen, and their cultivation has been improved since that time. 
A cornfield of moderate fertility produces a much greater quantity of food for man than the best pasture of equal extent. Though its cultivation requires much more labor, yet the surplus which remains after replacing the seed and maintaining all that labor is likewise much greater. If a pound of butcher's meat, therefore, was never supposed to be worth more than a pound of bread, this greater surplus would everywhere be of greater value and constitute a greater fund, both for the profit of the farmer and the rent of the landlord. It seems to have done so universally in the rude beginnings of agriculture. But the relative values of those two different species of food, bread and butcher's meat, are very different in the different periods of agriculture. In its rude beginnings, the unimproved wilds, which then occupy the far greater part of the country, are all abandoned to cattle. There is more butcher's meat than bread, and bread, therefore, is the food for which there is the greatest competition, and which consequently brings the greatest price. At Buenos Aires, we are told by Ulloa, four reals, one and twenty pence halfpenny sterling, was, forty or fifty years ago, the ordinary price of an ox, chosen from a herd of two or three hundred. He says nothing of the price of bread, probably because he found nothing remarkable about it. An ox there, he says, costs little more than the labor of catching him. But corn can nowhere be raised without a great deal of labor, and in a country which lies upon the river plate, at that time the direct road from Europe to the silver mines of Potosi, the money price of labor could be very cheap. It is otherwise when cultivation is extended over the greater part of the country. There is then more bread than butcher's meat. The competition changes its direction, and the price of butcher's meat becomes greater than the price of bread. By the extension, besides, of cultivation, the unimproved wilds become insufficient to supply the demand for butcher's meat. A great part of the cultivated lands must be employed in rearing and fattening cattle, of which the price, therefore, must be sufficient to pay not only the labor necessary for tending them, but the rent which the landlord and the profit which the farmer could have drawn from such land employed in tillage. The cattle bred upon the most uncultivated moors, when brought to the same market, are, in proportion to their weight or goodness, sold at the same price as those which are reared upon the most improved land. The proprietors of those moors profit by it, and raise the rent of their land in proportion to the price of their cattle. It is not more than a century ago that in many parts of the highlands of Scotland, butcher's meat was as cheap or cheaper than even bread made of oatmeal. The Union opened the market of England to the highland cattle. Their ordinary price at present is about three times greater than at the beginning of the century, and the rents of many highland estates have been tripled and quadrupled in the same time. In almost every part of Great Britain, a pound of the best butcher's meat is, in the present times, generally worth more than two pounds of the best white bread, and in plentiful years it is sometimes worth three or four pounds. It is thus that, in the progress of improvement, the rent and profit of unimproved pasture comes to be regulated in some measure by the rent and profit of what is improved, and these again by the rent and profit of corn. Corn is an annual crop, butcher's meat a crop which requires four or five years to grow. As an acre of land, therefore, will produce a much smaller quantity of the one species of food than of the other, the inferiority of the quantity must be compensated by the superiority of the price. If it was more than compensated, more corn land would be turned into pasture, and if it was not compensated, part of what was in pasture would be brought back into corn. This equality, however, between the rent and profit of grass and those of corn, of the land of which the immediate produce is food for cattle, and of that of which the immediate produce is food for men, must be understood to take place only through the greater part of the improved lands of a great country. 
In some particular local situations it is quite otherwise, and the rent and profit of grass are much superior to what can be made by corn. Thus, in the neighborhood of a great town, the demand for milk and for forage to horses frequently contribute, together with the high price of butcher's meat, to raise the value of grass above what may be called its natural proportion to that of corn. This local advantage, it is evident, cannot be communicated to the lands at a distance. Particular circumstances have sometimes rendered some countries so populous that the whole territory, like the lands in the neighborhood of a great town, has not been sufficient to produce both the grass and the corn necessary for the subsistence of their inhabitants. Their lands, therefore, have been principally employed in the production of grass, the more bulky commodity, and which cannot be so easily brought from a great distance, and corn, the food of the great body of the people, has been chiefly imported from foreign countries. Holland is at present in this situation, and a considerable part of ancient Italy seems to have been so during the prosperity of the Romans. To feed well, old Cato said, as we are told by Cicero, was the first and most profitable thing in the management of a private estate. To feed tolerably well, the second, and to feed ill, the third. To plough, he ranked only in the fourth place of profit and advantage. Tillage, indeed, in that part of ancient Italy which lay in the neighborhood of Rome, must have been very much discouraged by the distributions of corn which were frequently made to the people, either gratuitously or at a very low price. This corn was brought from the conquered provinces, of which several, instead of taxes, were obliged to furnish a tenth part of their produce at a stated price, about sixpence a peck to the republic. The low price at which this corn was distributed to the people must necessarily have sunk the price of what could be brought to the Roman market from Latium, or the ancient territory of Rome, and must have discouraged its cultivation in that country. In an open country, too, of which the principal produce is corn, a well-enclosed piece of grass will frequently rent higher than any cornfield in its neighborhood. It is convenient for the maintenance of the cattle employed in the cultivation of the corn, and its high rent is, in this case, not so properly paid from the value of its own produce as from that of the corn lands which are cultivated by means of it. It is likely to fall, if ever the neighboring lands are completely enclosed. The present high rent of enclosed land in Scotland seems owing to the scarcity of enclosure, and will probably last no longer than that scarcity. The advantage of enclosure is greater for pasture than for corn. It saves the labor of guarding the cattle, which feed better too, when they are not liable to be disturbed by their keeper or his dog. But where there is no local advantage of this kind, the rent and profit of corn, or whatever else is the common vegetable food of the people, must naturally regulate upon the land which is fit for producing it, the rent and profit of pasture. The use of the artificial grasses, of turnips, carrots, cabbages, and the other expedients which have been fallen upon to make an equal quantity of land feed a greater number of cattle than when in natural grass, should somewhat reduce, it might be expected, the superiority which, in an improved country, the price of butcher's meat naturally has over that of bread. It seems accordingly to have done so, and there is some reason for believing that, at least in the London market, the price of butcher's meat in proportion to the price of bread is a good deal lower in the present times than it was in the beginning of the last century. In the appendix to the life of Prince Henry, Dr. Birch has given us an account of the prices of butcher's meat as commonly paid by that prince. It is there said that the four quarters of an ox, weighing six hundred pounds, usually cost him nine pounds ten shillings, or thereabouts. That is, thirty-one shillings and eight pence per hundred pounds weight. Prince Henry died on the 6th of November, 1612, in the nineteenth year of his age. 
In March 1764, there was a parliamentary inquiry into the causes of the high price of provisions at that time. It was then, among other proof to the same purpose, given in evidence by a Virginia merchant that in March 1763 he had victualled his ships for twenty-four or twenty-five shillings the hundred weight of beef, which he considered as the ordinary price, whereas in that dear year he had paid twenty-seven shillings for the same weight and sort. This high price in 1764 is, however, four shillings and eight pence cheaper than the ordinary price paid by Prince Henry and it is the best beef only it must be observed which is fit to be salted for those distant voyages the price paid by prince henry amounts to threepence four-fifths per pound weight of the whole carcass coarse and choice pieces taken together and at that rate the choice pieces could not have been sold by retail for less than four and a half pence or five pence the pound in the parliamentary inquiry in seventeen sixty four the witnesses stated the price of the choice pieces of the best beef to be to the consumer four pence and four and a half pence the pound and the coarse pieces in general to be from seven farthings to two and a half pence and two and three-quarter pence and this they said was in general one halfpenny dearer than the same sort of pieces had usually been sold in the month of march but even this high price is still a good deal cheaper than what we can well suppose the ordinary retail price to have been in the time of prince henry during the first twelve years of the last century the average price of the best wheat at the windsor market was one pound eighteen shilling three and a half pence the quarter of nine winchester bushels but in the twelve years preceding seventeen sixty four including that year the average price of the same measure of the best wheat at the same market was two pound one shilling nine and a half pence in the first twelve years of the last century therefore wheat appears to have been a good deal cheaper and butcher's meat a good deal dearer than in the twelve years preceding seventeen sixty four including that year in all great countries the greater part of the cultivated lands are employed in producing either food for men or food for cattle the rent and profit of these regulate the rent and profit of all other cultivated land if any particular produce afforded less the land would soon be turned into corn or pasture and if any afforded more some part of the lands in corn or pasture would soon be turned to that produce those productions indeed which require either a greater original expense of improvement or a greater annual expense of cultivation in order to fit the land for them appear commonly to afford the one a greater rent the other a greater profit than corn or pasture this superiority however will seldom be found to amount to more than a reasonable interest or compensation for this superior expense in a hop garden a fruit garden a kitchen garden both the rent of the landlord and the profit of the farmer are generally greater than in acorn or grass field but to bring the ground into this condition requires more expense hence a greater rent becomes due to the landlord it requires too a more attentive and skilful management hence a greater profit becomes due to the farmer the crop too at least in the hop and fruit garden is more precarious its price, therefore, besides compensating all occasional losses, must afford something like the profit of insurance. The circumstances of gardeners, generally mean and always moderate, may satisfy us that their great ingenuity is not commonly over-recompensed. Their delightful art is practiced by so many rich people for amusement that little advantage is to be made by those who practice it for profit, because the persons who should naturally be their best customers supply themselves with all their most precious productions the advantage which the landlord derives from such improvements seems at no time to have been greater than what was sufficient to compensate the original expense of making them 
In the ancient husbandry, after the vineyard, a well-watered kitchen garden seems to have been the part of the farm which was supposed to yield the most valuable produce. But Democritus, who wrote upon husbandry about two thousand years ago, and who was regarded by the ancients as one of the fathers of the art, thought they did not act wisely who enclosed a kitchen garden. The prophet, he said, would not compensate the expense of a stone wall, and bricks, he meant, I suppose, bricks baked in the sun, moldered with the rain and the winter storm, and required continual repairs. Columella, who reports this judgment of Democritus, does not controvert it, but proposes a very frugal method of enclosing with a hedge of brambles and briars, which he says he had found by experience to be both a lasting and an impenetrable fence, but which, it seems, was not commonly known in the time of Democritus. Palladius adopts the opinion of Columella, which had before been recommended by Varro. In the judgment of those ancient improvers, the produce of a kitchen garden had, it seems, been little more than sufficient to pay the extraordinary culture and the expense of watering, for in countries so near the sun it was thought proper in those times as in the present to have the command of a stream of water which could be conducted to every bed in the garden through the greater part of europe a kitchen garden is not at present supposed to deserve a better enclosure than that recommended by columella in great britain and some other northern countries the finer fruits cannot be brought to perfection but by the assistance of a wall their price, therefore, in such countries must be sufficient to pay the expense of building and maintaining what they cannot be had without. The fruit wall frequently surrounds the kitchen garden, which thus enjoys the benefit of an enclosure which its own produce could seldom pay for. 